Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, this is Heather Barbieri, reading from my new novel, The Lacemakers of Glenmara, a story about Kate, a young American woman who helps a group of Irish lacemakers transform their lives, and ultimately her own. In this first chapter, Kate is traveling through the Irish countryside, considering the personal troubles she's been trying unsuccessfully to forget. Chapter 1, That Irish Rain. Kate had been traveling the road for hours, the rain her sole companion. It was an entertainer, that Irish rain, performing an endless variety of tricks for her amusement. It blew sideways, pounded, and sighed and dripped. It hailed neat little balls of ice that melted off her hood and shoulders. She did her best to ignore it. She knew the type. She was from Seattle, after all, the city of her birth, life, and heartbreak. She'd left a few days after the separation on a day very much like this nearly a month ago. She didn't know if she'd ever return, but the rain, or its cousin, followed, along with the memories that had driven her from that place. The story was simple enough, or seemed to be on the surface, as stories often are. She adopted a deadpan delivery in the telling, an amusing shtick as if she were a warm-up act at a comedy club. She'd told the story on so many occasions— drawing laughs and knowing nods and sympathy, that she had the timing down pat. Three minutes. Three minutes was all it took to dissect the end of a five-year relationship. It came down to this, she said. Ethan ran out with the model, a girl with black hair and pale skin and aquamarine eyes and a sizable trust fund, a girl who would have been courted by princes and lords if she'd lived in another time and place a girl thin and angular as a praying mantis, who wore Kate's designs at her failure of a fashion show and claimed to be her friend. The model spoke five languages, was a champion fencer and violin virtuoso. Kate lacked such impressive qualifications. She knew enough French to order three courses in a cafe or ask directions to the train or toilet, so long as accents and dialects weren't too strong. She could run a seven-minute mile. She thought of herself as pretty, not beautiful, petite, not tall. She tended to be lucky at cards, though little else relating to games of chance. She loved Fellini movies and popcorn and chocolate cake, and she loved Ethan still, after everything that had happened. She couldn't stop thinking about him, Imagine making arguments far more winning than she was capable of in real life. Real life was empty rooms. Real life was eating and cooking for one. Real life was less laundry and a cleaner apartment. He was a pack rat and a piler. He should have come with a warning. Real life was waking up alone. Which was all right, because she was furious about the betrayal. Furious, yes, though still in danger of succumbing to the impulse of forgiveness as she had before. No more. She was resolute, intent on enjoying this sojourn as much as possible, keeping sorrow at bay. The road lay before her, plain and simple, offering two ways to go, forward or back. No forks or splits or detours, just wide open fields of lumpy foxglove strewn green. The road made no excuses or apologies. It didn't have to. It was what it was. It went on, walls of moss bearded stone hemming in the narrow lane, 
past ruined farmhouses with half-collapsed roofs and blackened eyes. She'd been walking and hitching for nearly a month in the far western part of the country now, one of the few areas in which signs of civilization were slim to nil. She liked it that way. She toured Dublin in four days, Dublin both grand and gritty, the Halls of Trinity, the Book of Kells, the Georgian Streets, the museums with glass-encased mannequins and mummies with tattered clothes and bad teeth and marble eyes. Heroin addicts stealing her backpack. She gave chase, recovered the bag. She could be swift and fierce when she wanted to be. Housing estates and suffocating smog. There were two sides to everything. Two sides, if not more. She'd taken one bus, then another, heading for the mythical West, buses that didn't take her as far as they were supposed to, missing connections, finally breaking down entirely, the station agents saying new vehicles would arrive within the hour, then two, then three, claims that took on the air of fairy tales. In the end, she grew tired of waiting and set off on foot, eventually winding up here, exhaustion making the scene all the more surreal. Each step she took left a mark, some visible, some not, marks that said, I was here, I exist. That was one reason people went away, wasn't it? To forget, to reinvent themselves? She'd been a quiet person at home, had let the gregarious people in her life, Ethan, her friend Ella, even her mother, take the lead, happy to be the soft-spoken sidekick who offered the occasional sage remark, witty aside. She was on her own now. It felt strange, yes, but she was ready for something new, ready to be someone new. The air smelled of grass, damp, dung, and peat smoke from a distant fire, though she saw no indications of life in the immediate vicinity other than cows and sheep. They weren't the sort of sheep of her dreams, white and pure and fluffed. They were dingy and yellowed and matted. Ma, said the sheep. Ma, she replied, the exchange bringing her to the point of tears because it was something Ethan might have done when they were easier together and kindness and clowning were possible. Ma, as if the animals had lost their mother, as she had done that February. No crying, she told herself sternly. She could keep herself in hand, smile in spite of everything. It wasn't so hard, really. You can choose to be happy. She didn't mind the rain, not usually, but this was too much. I should have picked someplace drier, she thought ruefully, like Spain. But even Spain had its challenges that year, with legions of stinging jellyfish, blackouts, and a plague of voles consuming crops and gardens. She'd read about it in the paper. Shouldn't the weather be nicer by now, so close to the first of May? She took shelter under a rhododendron, its blooms surrounding her with pinked fragrance, and nibbled on an energy bar, which tasted like sawdust in the best of circumstances, and these, assuredly, were not. She wasn't hungry. She was never hungry at the beginning or end of a love affair, this one especially, this one that was supposed to last. Everyone had been so sure she and Ethan would get married that she would catch the bouquet at the medieval wedding that they attended that March, the couple being devoted not only to each other but the society of creative anachronism. The event at which he left her, if not at the altar, just southwest of it, next to an ice sculpture of a knight in shining armor that had begun to melt, a moat of water at his feet, his sword soon to be no more than a toothpick. I can't breathe, Ethan said as they filed out of the room after the minister pronounced the couple, man and wife. The turreted stone house in Seattle's Denny Regrade neighborhood would be transformed to a castle, festooned with tapestries, standards, and heraldry. 
the wooded grounds and miniature Sherwood Forest, a formidable scene, especially after multiple flagons of ale. I know what you mean, Kate whispered in a mock English accent. This corset is an iron lung, though you do look rather comely in those tights. The scent of prime rib and roast vegetables drifted from the banquet hall. She wondered how she'd managed to eat, wished she'd brought a change of clothes. She would have liked to slip into something more comfortable, but it wasn't that sort of wedding. It was a theme party, and the bride was determined to have her way, mutton sleeves and all. Kate felt by turns amused and ridiculous. No, Ethan avoided her gaze. I mean, I can't do this anymore. This? She didn't let her smile falter, wouldn't let him spoil the evening. We can leave if you want, but Sean will be disappointed if you miss the joust. And she, too, because she hoped that they could dance afterward. The bride's parents had hired a pipe band already skirling away. A jester tumbled down the great hall, narrowly avoiding a priceless Ming vase, jingling his bells. Fire-eaters gulped flames on the balcony. She wondered if they ever burned their tongues. No, us. Ethan let the word sink in for a moment. It's over. I'm sorry. He moved away tottering slightly, loose from his moorings, though others perhaps put it down to drinking. Before he reached the exit, a friend reeled him in, clapped him on the back, and he allowed himself to be caught this way, obviously grateful for the distraction. Within moments, he was raising toasts and laughing. He was, among other things, resilient, and clever enough to know Kate wouldn't follow and make a scene. She stood there, speechless, her expression not unlike that of the roast pig at the center of the feast, mouth agape, minus the apple. At first she wondered if witnessing the exchange of vows, the pledge of fidelity, the till death do us part had unnerved Ethan. She could understand that. She could wait. She wouldn't pressure him. She got a ride home with Ella, figuring she and Ethan would kiss and make up later, as they always did. She was wrong. That night he moved in with a friend, saying he needed time and space to think. He left most of his things behind. Whenever she called, he was out. She wondered if he'd been living there. But where else could he be if he wasn't? She waited two weeks, counting the days, until his friend finally took pity and confessed that Ethan had been seeing the model for months, that they were, in fact, soon to be engaged. Instead of Ethan and the Kate moving to Manhattan to pursue their dreams, he in finance, she in fashion, it would be Ethan and the model. Kate was left with no boyfriend and few buyers for her debut line. The concept hadn't clicked, her rep, Jules said. She needed to try something more high concept, never mind that she thought that she already had, following his advice against her better instincts. The only takers were two small local boutiques, the money she earned hardly enough to pay her expenses, meaning she would have to start doing alterations. She was sick of letting down hems, making allowances, mending buttons and holes, tasks people could have done themselves if they'd only taken a few minutes. Less than it took to bring the garments to the vintage clothing store, Ella's, owned by her best friend, where Kate tried to make ends meet. Her fingertips were rough from the work, seamstress hands. Her mother had them, too. I have to get out of here, she told Ella, not just the shop, the city, the state, the entire country, to Ireland, land of her ancestors, land of the green, of rainbows and magic and pots of gold. She and her mother had intended to go together, but her mother's cancer had accelerated, taking her before they made the trip. She made Kate promise to travel on her own, left her a small inheritance to finance a venture. Then Kate and Ethan meant to visit as part of a European tour, which Kate had thought of as their future honeymoon, and Ethan, she now realized, probably hadn't.
There she was, halfway around the world, heading down this potholed, split-lipped road that went God only knew where, trying to forget the way Ethan's hair stuck up in the morning, the way he made her coffee and burned the toast, the way his eyes held so many colors, flecks of green and gold and brown and blue. She'd never seen eyes like that before. She'd been seduced by them the first time he'd asked her a question in a college literature class seven years ago. They'd been studying Thomas Hardy that term. Had that been a bad sign? They were friends in the beginning. She watched him date a succession of people, waiting to be chosen, waiting for the night she and Ethan would drink too much, fall into bed, and become inseparable. She'd be more careful next time. She'd only date men who chose her first, when they were sober and sure. She'd only date men with solid, reliable eyes, eyes that had settled on being one color, say brown, yes, brown, if she ever trusted herself to date again. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.